I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman, and you're listening to the Women in NatSec podcast miniseries on the national security workforce. Why is it the people behind the policy are so often an afterthought in national security strategy? What has to change to bridge today's national security talent with tomorrow's challenges? Tune in for big and small ideas from experts across the field. I'm here with Maggie Feldman-Pilch as part of our National Security Human Capital miniseries and the Women in National Security podcast. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me on one of my favorite wonky topics of the face of the earth. I'm so glad that you asked me to do it. This is also my favorite wonky topic, and it's good to nerd out with somebody. Yes, there are. That there are a very small group of us who are fascinated by this business, and uh, like, but I personally find the 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 matter of matching really talented, patriotic, and interested people into a career field that makes it as difficult as possible for them to break in. Like that is one of my driving passions. I'm so delighted to be able to nerd out about it. Um, so first, Maggie, I wanted to ask, uh, I, first, I should mention that you are, you have an amazing title. You are the managing director of Unicorn Strategies and founder of the amazing Natsec Girl Squad, which does just tremendous work in really kind of building and advancing this community. Um, but I wanted to ask, what is the first moment that you really realized that you worked in national security or maybe that you just really, this is where you wanted to hang your hat. This is where you wanted to be. Oh man, no one has actually asked me this question. And so to record the answer the first time I answer it, it could be incredibly embarrassing. Oh, this is going to um, be great. I'm excited. <laughs> so, um, when I was an undergrad, I had a really clear idea that I was going to go out into the world and work in corporate social responsibilities for luxury fashion and consumer goods. And I wrote this fairly radical undergraduate thesis titled The Intentional Human Rights Failures of States and Firms. And I was basically like on this crusade to make like Louis Vuitton, you know, and like fulfill the human rights of its entire manufacturing workforce. It was this whole thing. Um, and I remember watching Legally Blonde 2 and watching Elle Woods come to D.C. and testify before Congress for Bruiser's Bill and all this stuff. And I was like, that could be me. That would be great. Um, and then I watched The West Wing. Oh, wow. And yeah, <laughs> it's never where people think I'm going to go. So I watched The West Wing and I remember getting like so attached to this character of Leo McGarry and was like, no, that's it. That's what I want to do with my life. I want to grow up and be Leo McGarry. Um, so I moved to D.C. like three or four days after I, I finished undergrad. Um, and I started as an unpaid intern at a tiny think tank like everybody does, and uh, American Security Project. Um, and I was writing blogs like everybody else, uh, which turns out I'm really not that good at. Um, and I was mostly writing on development and diplomacy um, because I was kind of coming from an econ background um, and realized that I was interested in maybe something else and my boss at the time, um, General Stephen Cheney, threw me a book called The Masks of War, which is a you know, like 1970s RAND report on uh, service culture and how it impacts how the military services uh, do their job. Um, and I was just so hooked. Um, and from that moment on, kind of had the cool opportunity to be an assistant to a bunch of retired senior military leaders and went on a bunch of cool adventures with them and realized that um, there was something about this world that really 
you know, kind of jives with my weird crossover of Elle Woods and Leo McGarry. Um, and now I'm here. <laughs> I think that is, first of all, that is a match made in heaven. If we only we could, you know, pull together that in terms of cloning. But uh, I, I'm so I'm so happy to hear someone else shares my enormous adoration for Liam McGarry because he's not usually one of the favorite characters in the West Wing, but he's the guy. He's been working for decades just to make America better behind the scenes and doing such a great job at it. Yeah, and to me, I think that's really what national security and defense is about. Um, and people ask me sometimes, like, how did NASA Girl Squad happen? Or you know, there are lots of variations on that question. And ultimately, like, I've always known that I wanted to do something with my life to make the world a better place. Um, and some of that is selfish, right? Um, but I was born into a set of circumstances that gave me incredible opportunity um, to parents who didn't have that opportunity growing up and a big adopted family that really showed me how big the world is and how big our country is. Um, and I think the, the core ethos of knapsack land is this idea that like you can do something in a big way to make the world better and nobody has to know it was you. And that was like music to my ears. Um, and so sometimes NASA Girl Squad is really, uh, it, it requires so much of me in a public way that it's still something I really struggle with and like balancing those two things. But recognizing like these are the skills and resources I have in front of me and this is how I feel like I can best serve my country in the context I'm in right now. Um, and you know, you mentioned like this is the thing that kind of keeps you up at night. Like, how do you match patriotic, competent people with a, a career in public service? Um, and it causes me so much agony <laughs> to know like other people have this drive, right? And it is so hard to break in. And like, I've not fully even broken in yet, right? Like, it, it's it's an ongoing process, um, and that's really like what gets me out of bed in the morning, as sad as that sounds. <laughs> uh, I think that's inspiring and amazing that there are people out you who are thinking about that linkage between there's an, just an enormous requirement for that kind of talent and an enormous group of talented people. And we can do a lot more than we're doing right now in order to bridge those two. Uh, so kind of building off of that, both from your own career experience and also just from the amazing network that you've built here in D.C., what is it? what are some things that you think that either the American people or maybe members of Congress don't really understand about people who work in national security? That's such a good question. So I think this idea of diversity and inclusion has gained a lot of traction in, in recent years. And we think about it as something separate from national security and defense. And to me, the second we start that, those conversations separately, the second I know we're doomed for failure, right? I don't think about um, workforce as like workforce development um, and engagement as like just an issue about recruiting and window dressing and all of these things. And from my perspective, like the United States biggest challenges come down to readiness, like mission and operational capacity, right? And at the core of those things, like that, that is the lens with which I see the world kind of. And to me, you can't solve any problem unless you have the right people in the room, no matter what. Like you can have the best weapon system, the best missile defense, the best whatever. But if you don't have the right minds, you're, you're never going to get anywhere. Um, and so one, this idea that there's a monolithic identity of 
who is in national security, who is in defense, who is allowed to succeed um, and contribute is a fundamental flaw. Um, and the idea that diversity and inclusion is anything except an issue of national security and defense um, is a problem. Like, I, I try to explain to people that if you think diversity and inclusion are, are soft issues, that this is about win window dressing, then you are soft on national security. Um, and it's full stop. Like, there is no room for argument or discussion there for me. Uh, well, I, I would like to subscribe to that newsletter. Um, <laughs> What do you think, uh, perhaps building on that uh, point or maybe broadening to another one, what are some of the biggest challenges you see in the current landscape to building the national security workforce that this country really needs right now? So I think it, it's hard to identify just one challenge, right? Because this, and, I, and you and I have talked about this, this is a, a multifaceted challenge and you've got stop happening on the strategic level that, that really creates barriers to entry. You've got tactical and operational stuff that even if you manage to wiggle your way in, the, the retention, the promotion, the support, it, it's, it's a huge problem. So it's not even just things like, and I'll list a few things that really keep me up at night, uh, security clearance reform, um, professional development and professional military education opportunities, um, and, and how we describe, define, promote leadership, all of these things, like truly keep me up at night and, and are, I think, incredible leverage points um, to make large scale change. But it's also kind of the siloing of, okay, I'm at this agency over here and I'm just gonna think about recruiting, retaining, supporting, promoting my workforce over here without thinking about the larger apparatus that is so interagency heavy and that requires not just uh, dare I say, whole of government approach. So meaning like a, a policy answer, an, an implementation that is that is uh, responsive and agile and can really like be tailored to each org and service or whatever, but also acknowledging that there is a like third party solution that has to be involved and that we also need an outside of government or government adjacent network to support people. So with that in mind, if you had, if you could pitch a couple of either big or even small ideas which would make a difference in solving some of those challenges, what do you think those should be? This is my favorite question because aside from all the things I've listed, this is the only other thing I think about. Um, so I'm totally going to take a minute here to plug NASDAQ Girl Squad because what kind of you know founder and community leader would I be if I didn't? Um, so NASDAQ Girl Squad is officially a professional development community for people committed to competent diversity in national security and defense. So what that means is that our programming, our membership, everything we do, none of it is gender exclusive. We talk about and think about and act on diversity in the fullest sense. So that means demographics. It also means uh, diversity of viewpoint, diversity of experience. Um, and so when we first started, actually, our, our majority of paying members were men, and um, they are our most active silent contributors, which is really interesting and probably the subject of a different podcast and totally about them recognizing some untapped potential. Um, but NASA Girl Squad is built on the idea that, like, this, this issue of workforce is a readiness, dare I say, lethality and, and mission challenge. Um, and we've 
focus on kind of three ways that we think we can tackle this problem or what our contribution to the solution is. So one is building expertise among members, building confidence in that expertise, because we know that people who are outside of the default, which I lovingly call pale, male, and stale, um, are less likely to kind of raise their hand and say, hey, I'm an expert, and also are less likely to have their expertise recognized. And then finally, which is really the, my passion project, um, is this idea of looking at existing institutions and saying, here's the system we have. Let's keep what we like. Let's identify the leverage points and change what we need to change. Um, so NASA Girl Squad does an enormous amount of programming, formally and informally, to build expertise, um, you know, subject area expertise, to help train people how to write op-eds, how do you do public speaking, how do you have a difficult conversation at work. Um, and then also kind of the quote softer stuff of, of networking, which we know is really important um, to people, again, outside of that pale, male, and stale family. Um, we tend to rely more heavily on pseudo-personal or professional personal networks for advancement. Um, and then also to kind of take care of your whole self. So we have some cool partnerships in the works with brands like M.M. LeFleur and Rent the Runway. Um, and that programming has been really well with, received, um, which has enabled us to launch a partnership with GuideHouse, um, formerly PwC Public Sector, and to build kind of a program, um, or to build this programming on a larger scale and turn around to federal agencies and say, hey, you know you've got a problem and you're all knocking on our door and begging to source out of our 13,000 members. Um, and we don't feel good about just turning over our members to, to organizations and to people when we don't know what's behind the door. Um, so instead, kind of assessing what are the programs that they have, not just to recruit, right, but to retain and support their workforce, seeing what they have, figuring out what the gaps are, building in some in-house programming to help them fill those gaps, and then verifying them as a NASDAQ Girl Squad recruiting partner and saying, yeah, we think, you know, you're trying, your heart's in the right place, you've put resources behind it, you're making progress, um, and we want to help you get there, right? Go ahead, you know, source, recruit from our incredible members, um, and try and, and build, I guess, both from the bottom up, right? So from the tactical level, like having more connectivity among individuals, um, and then also getting agencies to get it together, right? Because we've all, there, there's too many opportunities for progress because there's so much progress to be made um, that we're, we're really excited about scaling in this way. That sounds like, first of all, congratulations. It sounds like a, an incredible opportunity uh, and really exciting for you and this entire network you've built. But uh, you know, I'm curious, I mean, so much of what you are articulating, it just sounds as though like these are I don't want to say obvious, but in some ways, yeah, obvious things that the, the modern day workforce should be considering and like incorporating without having it be almost kind of thrust upon them in some way. So why is it you think that, what is it about national security, maybe in particular, or maybe as government more broadly, that has struggled with figuring out how do we, you know, retain, develop, mentor, and sponsor 
it's the workforce talent that it needs um, so far. And it, you know, I think it's great that there is a recognition of a problem such that you know they would be able to bring in outside experts such as yourself to help enable that. But that speaks to a real gap in the system as it stands, uh, not only in government, but I also, I, I had the thought as you were speaking that I think you're presently in grad school. To some degree, it's also a gap in, edu- gap in education as well. Uh, so, you know, what's the, what's the problem? So I think, you know, I, again, I lovingly call them pale, male, and fail, aka PMS. Um, you, you can't see what you can't see, right? And you can't communicate with a community you don't understand. So the first example that pops into my head is a conversation I had recently with a federal law enforcement agency, actually several of them uh, in a public setting. So nothing that I'm about to share is, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble. Um, And they're talking about just recruiting women. And I wish you could see my face right now. Um, the, The phrase they used to talk about recruiting women was, I kid you not, capturing females. Wow. I'm like, yeah, because it makes me, right? Like, that makes me feel real good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want exactly right what in. I'm looking for. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah, I'm going to, I'm for sure going to sign up to work for you because you're, I feel like I'm going to be on the receiving end of covert action. Thank you. Um, so I think it really comes down to, like, inter, dare I say, intercultural communication. It's when your leadership is, one way and has one set of lived experiences and that is not representative of reality for frankly the majority of people they're going to have trouble not just communicating in a way that you know that they can be understood by the people they're supposedly leading but they're not going to understand what anybody's saying back to them right mm-hmm. like one of the and if like some of the retired officers i've had the pleasure of working with they still say the google and the twitter right like it's a little thing, but it's just, it's diff- they're worlds apart. Um, and I think the, the problem started when we had a whole bunch, you know, borderline hundreds of thousands of Bud McFarlane's in charge. And Bud McFarlane is only going to recruit, retain, support, and know how a bunch of people that are like Bud McFarlane. Him. Yep which, you know, that's terrifying for a lot of different reasons. Um, but, but it also, but, I mean, to, the, the point that I try to make, and I think you've made many times before, that makes sense that that is the case, but no longer reflects both what we need as a nation, but also the workforce that's available to them in any way, shape, or form. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think about where, you know, we're at a time of declining readiness in terms of like we're at an all-time low right of of young people who meet the basic requirements for military service which is of course not the only way to serve your country but is a decent metric where we have so little data like who do you think you are that you are so special that you can turn away competent capable engaged interested people from your workforce right like why do you think that we have such an abundance of this resource that you don't need to devote real time and energy. And I'm not talking about marketing and branding and getting an Instagram account, right? Like that is not a, like there's a real challenge in front of us. And we are very much from my perspective at an inflection point, right? Mm-hmm. Like so many open positions and so many people who would do anything to get their foot in the door and would give everything they had, right? Like they, they would leave it all out on the floor every day at work. But why are they not able to get through the door? And it's not, it, it, and, and sometimes 
the, the reasons are silly and a lot of them have to do, you know, with security clearance before and absolutely, but it's like once they get through the door, how do we keep them? And how much of it has to do with things like student debt and how much of it has to do with things like paternity and maternity leave and all of the, and, and, you know, development opportunities and work-life balance and like, you know, how many times is somebody going to touch your hair in the course of a day? All of these things matter. Um, and I think the more we're finally talking about it because, again, we've reached an inflection point. Um, I'm hopeful that people that we're starting to listen to each other, maybe. Um, I think, but I think it's a problem long time coming, right? And fortunately, we have people like you and your broad network of folks who are wanting to continue that conversation. And I just have tremendous admiration for the fact that you have been able to bring in not only real advocates for diversity of background, thought and opinion and perspective into your uh, into your community, but also folks who have not had that experience, but have wanted to be able to you know, either recruit better or partner better, collaborate or mentor, uh, whatever it is. That I think that your, your articulation of pale male and stale, I believe there's also sometimes Yale is thrown into that mix. Uh, and, at the, and at the end of the Obama administration, uh, Ambassador Susan Rice made a, a really strong case as to why diversity matters as a national security as a national security issue. Uh, and I loved your articulation of how if you are soft on diversity, you are soft on national security. And it's too bad that at the end of the that uh, Ambassador Rice's initiative took place at the end, because I think a lot of the, the thinking behind it went away as many of those leaders departed and the Trump administration came in. Um, but there are, you know, outside of government or also inside of government, there's a lot of strong advocates that are continuing the conversation in exactly the way you articulated. So, Maggie, thank you so much. Um, I'm delighted to have you on the show. I'm sure there are 30 million other conversations we should have on this issue. Uh, but, but this was a great start, and we will, we will continue elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm so glad that you and CNIS are putting real resources behind this. I mean, you are a podcasting pro. Everybody knows that. And so, like, people are going to listen to the show, and people are going to talk about it, and, like, there's no doubt in my mind that if nothing else, we're going to have a whole crew of people who are really ready to do something moving forward, and that is something we couldn't say a few years ago. So yay for you guys for doing this. Oh, thank you.